Chapter Twenty B of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Twenty B. A critical situation. McClellan again in command. Lincoln takes the responsibility. McClellan's account of his reinstatement. The Battle of Antietam. The President vindicated. Again dissatisfied with McClellan. Visits the army in the field. The President in the saddle. Correspondence between Lincoln and McClellan. McClellan's final removal. Lincoln's summing up of McClellan. McClellan's bodyguard. Thus the autumn of 1862 set in amidst gloom, disorder, and dismay. Our armies in and around the national capital were on the defensive, while the victorious Lee, following up his successes at Manassas, was invading Maryland and threatening Washington and the North. The President was anxious. The Cabinet and Congress were alarmed. The troops had lost confidence in General Pope, and there was practically no one in chief command. The situation was most critical, but Lincoln faced it, as he always did, unflinchingly. He took what he felt to be the wisest, and at the same time the most unpopular step possible under the circumstances. He placed McClellan in command of all the troops in and around Washington. It was a bold act, and required no ordinary amount of moral courage and self-reliance. Outside the army it was about the most unpopular thing that could have been done. McClellan was disliked by all the members of the Cabinet and prominent officials and with especial bitterness by Secretary Stanton. Secretary Wells speaks in his diary of Stanton's implacable hostility to McClellan, and records his belief that Stanton is determined to destroy McClellan. Wells relates that on the very day of Pope's defeat at Manassas, Secretary Stanton, accompanied by Secretary Chase, called on him and asked him to join in signing a communication to the President demanding McClellan's immediate dismissal from command of the Army of the Potomac, saying all the members of the Cabinet would sign it. The document was in Stanton's handwriting. Wells, though far from friendly toward McClellan, refused to sign the paper, and the matter was dropped. Wells adds the comment, There was a fixed determination to remove, and if possible, to disgrace, McClellan. When it was rumored in Washington that McClellan was to be reinstated, everyone was thunderstruck. A cabinet meeting was held on the second day of September at which the President, without asking anyone's opinion, announced that he had reinstated McClellan. Regret and surprise were openly expressed. Mr. Stanton, with some excitement, remarked that no such order had issued from the War Department. The President then said, with great calmness, no, Mr. Secretary, the order was mine, and I will be responsible for it to the country," he added by way of explanation that with a retreating and demoralized army tumbling in upon the capital, and alarm and panic in the community, something had to be done, and as there did not appear to be anyone else to do it, he took the responsibility on himself. He remarked that McClellan had the confidence of the troops beyond any other officer, and could under the circumstances, more speedily and effectually reorganized them, and put them in fighting trim than any other general. This is what is now wanted most, said he, and these were my reasons for placing McClellan in command. 
Perhaps at no other crisis of the war did Lincoln's strength of character and power of making quick and important decisions in the face of general opposition come out more clearly than on this occasion. Secretary Wells, who was present at the dramatic and stormy cabinet meeting referred to, says, In stating what he had done, the President was deliberate, but firm and decisive. His language and manner were kind and affectionate, especially toward two of the members, who were greatly disturbed. But every person present felt that he was truly the chief, and every one knew his decision was as fixed and unalterable as if given out with the imperious command and determined will of Andrew Jackson. A long discussion followed, closing with acquiescence in the decision of the President. In this instance the President, unaided by others, put forth with firmness and determination the executive will, the one-man power, against the temporary general sense of the community, as well as of his cabinet, two of whom, it has been generally supposed, had with him an influence almost as great as the Secretary of State. They had been ready to make issue, and resign their places unless McClellan was dismissed. But knowing their opposition, and in spite of it and of the general dissatisfaction in the community, the President had in that perilous moment exalted him to new and important trusts. It appears from the statement of General McClellan, made shortly before his death, that on the morning of his reinstatement, before the cabinet meeting just described, the President visited him at his headquarters, near Washington, to ask if he would again assume command. While at breakfast, at an early hour, says McClellan, I received a call from the President, accompanied by General Halleck. The President informed me that Colonel Kelton had returned and represented the condition of affairs as much worse than I had stated to Halleck on the previous day that there were thirty thousand stragglers on the roads, that the army was entirely defeated and falling back to Washington in confusion. He then said that he regarded Washington as lost, and asked me if I would, under the circumstances, consent to accept command of all the forces. Without a moment's hesitation, and without making any conditions whatever, I at once said that I would accept the command, and would stake my life that I would save the city. Both the President and Halleck again asserted their belief that it was impossible to save the city, and I repeated my firm conviction that I could and would save it. They then left, the President verbally placing me in entire command of the city and of the troops falling back upon it from the front. The result of the reappointment of McClellan soon vindicated the wisdom of the step. He possessed the confidence of the army beyond any other general at that time, and was able to inspire it with renewed hope and courage leaving Washington on the 7th of September, in command of Pope's beaten and disintegrated forces, which he had to reorganize on the march, he within two weeks met the flushed and lately victorious troops of Lee and Jackson, and fought the bloody but successful battle of Antietam, September 17, 1862, which compelled Lee to retreat to the southern side of the Potomac, and relieved Washington of any immediate danger. After the Antietam Campaign the Army of the Potomac rested a while from its exhausting and disorganizing labors. Supplies and reinforcements were necessary before resuming active operations. This delay gave rise to no little dissatisfaction in Washington, where a clamor arose that McClellan should have followed up his successes at Antietam by immediately pursuing Lee into Virginia. In this dissatisfaction the President shared to some extent. He made a personal visit to the Army for the purpose of satisfying himself of its condition. 
Of this occasion McClellan says, On the first day of October His Excellency the President honored the Army of the Potomac with a visit, and remained several days during which he went through the different encampments, reviewed the troops, and went over the battlefield of South Mountain and Antietam. I had the opportunity during this visit to describe to him the operations of the army since it left Washington, and gave him my reasons for not following the enemy after he recrossed the Potomac. Before the grand review that was to be made by the President, some of McClellan's staff, knowing that the general was a man of great endurance and expertness in the saddle, laughed at the idea of Lincoln's attempting to keep up with him, in the severe ordeal of riding down the lines. They rather hinted, says a narrator, that the general would move somewhat rapidly to test Mr. Lincoln's capacity as a rider. There were those on the field, however, who had seen Mr. Lincoln in the saddle in Illinois, and they were confident of his staying powers. A splendid black horse, very spirited, was selected for the President to ride. When the time came, Mr. Lincoln walked up to the animal, and the instant he seized the bridle to mount, it was evident to horsemen that he knew his business. He had the animal in hand at once. No sooner was he in the saddle than the coal-black steed began to prance and whirl and dance as if he was proud of his burden. But the President sat as unconcerned and fixed to the saddle as if he and the horse were one. The test of endurance soon came. McClellan, with his magnificent staff, approached the President who joined them, and away they dashed to a distant part of the field. The artillery began to thunder, the drums beat, and the bands struck up hail to the chief, while the troops cheered. Mr. Lincoln, holding the bridle rein in one hand, lifted his tall hat from his head, and much of the time held it in the other hand. Grandly did Lincoln receive the salute, appearing as little disturbed by the dashing movements of the proud-spirited animal as if he had passed through such an ordeal with the same creature many times before. Next came a further test of endurance a long dash over very rough untravelled ground, with here and there a ditch or a hole to be jumped or a siding to be passed. But Mr. Lincoln kept well up to McClellan, who made good time. Finally the riding down the lines was performed, amidst the flaunting of standards, the beating of drums, the loud cheering of the men, and rapid discharges of artillery, startling even the best-trained horses. Lincoln sat easily to the end when he wheeled his horse into position to witness the vast columns march in review. McClellan was surprised at so remarkable a display of horsemanship. Mr. Lincoln was a great lover of the horse, and a skilled rider. His awkwardness of form did not show in the saddle. He always looked well when mounted. After the President's return to Washington he began urging McClellan to resume active operations desiring him to cross the Potomac and give battle to the enemy or drive him south. On the 13th of October he addressed to him the long letter quoted at the end of the preceding chapter. Subsequent communications from the President to McClellan showed more and more impatience. On the 25th he telegraphed, "'I have just read your dispatch about sore-tongue and fatigued horses. Will you pardon me for asking what the horses of your army have done?' since the battle of antietam that fatigues anything and the next day after receiving mcclellan's answer to his inquiry he responded most certainly i intend no injustice to any one and if i have done any i deeply regret it to be told after more than five weeks total inaction of the army 
and during which period we had sent to that army every fresh horse we possibly could, amounting in the whole to seven thousand nine hundred eighteen, that the cavalry horses were too much fatigued to move, presented a very cheerless, almost hopeless prospect for the future, and it may have forced something of impatience into my dispatches. If not recruited and rested, then, what could they ever be? I suppose the river is rising, and I am glad to believe you are crossing." But McClellan did not cross. His preparations for a new campaign were not yet complete. And the President, at last losing patience, removed him from command, and put Burnside in his place, November 5, 1862. And a disastrous step this proved to be. Burnside was under peremptory orders from Washington to move immediately against the Confederate forces. The result was the ill-advised attack upon Fredericksburg, December 12, 1862, and Burnside's bloody repulse. The movement was made against the judgment of the Army officers then, and has been generally condemned by military critics since. Secretary Wells thus guardedly commented upon it in his diary. It appears to me a mistake to fight the enemy in so strong a position. They have selected their own ground, and we meet them there. But it was McClellan's unwillingness to do the very thing that Burnside is censured for having done, and that proved so overwhelming a disaster, that was the occasion for McClellan's removal. A good illustration of Lincoln's disappointed, perhaps unreasonable, state of mind before McClellan's removal is furnished by Honorable O. M. Hatch a former Secretary of State of Illinois and an old friend of Lincoln's. Mr. Hatch relates that a short time before McClellan's removal from command, he went with President Lincoln to visit the army, still near Antietam. They reached Antietam late in the afternoon of a very hot day, and were assigned a special tent for their occupancy during the night. Early next morning, says Mr. Hatch, I was awakened by Mr. Lincoln. It was very early. Daylight was just lighting the east. The soldiers were all asleep in their tents. Scarce a sound could be heard except the notes of early birds and the farmyard voices from distant farms. Lincoln said to me, "'Come, Hatch, I want you to take a walk with me.' His tone was serious and impressive. I arose without a word, and as soon as we were dressed we left the tent together. He led me about the camp, and then we walked upon the surrounding hills overlooking the great city of white tents and sleeping soldiers. Very little was spoken between us, beyond a few words as to the pleasantness of the morning or similar casual observations. Lincoln seemed to be peculiarly serious, and his quiet, abstract way affected me also. It did not seem a time to speak. We walked slowly and quietly meeting here and there a guard, our thoughts leading us to reflect on that wonderful situation. A nation in peril, the whole world looking at America, a million men in arms, the whole machinery of war engaged throughout the country, while I stood by that kind-hearted, simple-minded man who might be regarded as the director-general, looking at the beautiful sunrise and the magnificent scene before us. Nothing was to be said, nothing needed to be said. Finally, reaching a commanding point where almost that entire camp could be seen, the men were just beginning their morning duties, and evidences of life and activity were becoming apparent. We involuntarily stopped. The President, waving his hand towards the scene before us, and leaning towards me, said, 
in an almost whispering voice, "'Hatch! Hatch! What is all this?' "'Why, Mr. Lincoln,' said I, "'this is the Army of the Potomac.' He hesitated a moment, and then, straightening up, said in a louder tone, "'No, Hatch! No! This is General McClennan's bodyguard!' Nothing more was said. We walked to our tent, and the subject was not alluded to again. End of chapter 20b. Recording by Bill Borst.